And we are back. Thank you guys so much for joining us. A little special edition midweek deep dive interview. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot going on. Uh, And oil is at the center of it. Energy is at the center of it. And my thoughts, uh, our guest today is one of probably two people that I think about when I've got a question about what's going on with energy. Um, And so naturally... We reached out to her and see if she was willing to come on today and, and fill us in on, on some developments. We've had a lot of those in the last 24 hours and uh, probably we'll have a lot more. So without further further ado, Tracy also at Shy Girl is how I, it's so funny, Tracy, when we talk because I, I, I think of you as Shy Girl, right? It's the it's the it's the Twitter. It's the Twitter handle. Um, I know. You know that, that I came to know you through. And so anyway, but Tracy, thank you so much for joining us and agreeing to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I think the best place to start, um, you know, especially for the listeners to our show and our podcast, I think they're, you know, most people are aware of what's going on in energy markets now, but we've seen a pretty sharp pullback here in oil. Uh, You and I uh, DM'd a little bit yesterday and you were telling me that we needed a pullback. Kind of walk us through where you think we are and, and, and what you were looking for when you said we needed a pullback. And then the announcements that came out today. Uh, we've got about three announcements, Tracy, that I wanted to, I wanted to run by you. Uh, okay. You know, first, on the, as it pertains to the actual commodity, I think, you know, I think that the news that's moving markets today is more, um, I don't know what the word is, you know, more ephemeral, right? There's not a lot of data tied to it. Whereas, you know, we have, we have announced the embargo on our side. Uh, Russia said that they're going to restrict the export of certain natural resources. Um, What does, what do those two actions, uh, what we know about them anyway, what do those two actions do to oil markets and where does that put us compared to where we were before those announcements were made? Right. Well, I mean, to be honest, if you look at um, the U.S., Um, We'll start with the U.S. de facto embargo. First, we don't really buy that much from Russia, right? We get 2% of our oil from Russia. And we actually don't – we mostly buy product from them. So we buy Mazut 100, which is like a heavy fuel oil that we use for blending with the lighter stuff to make – distillates, which we need. That said, those quantities are not so large that we can't get them from somewhere else. I mean, okay. we could we could get them from Canada. We can get some stuff from Brazil. And then the administration is currently begging Venezuela for oil. They'll let them off sanctions if U.S. is the only person to um, that they will export to. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so hold on. And I, this is on one of my lists I want to talk to you about. Uh, does first of all, does Venezuela? You, you were saying that the way that we replace our Russian oil, you thought Brazil was the place to go. Why would we be right. going to Venezuela? Um, you know, I, I think this administration has no grasp of uh, global energy at all whatsoever. I mean, if we look at what Venezuela is producing right now, is you know they're at about eight hundred thousand barrels per day, down from three point five million. Barrels, you know, at the height, right? So, I mean, they have aging infrastructure. Their refineries catch on fire all the time. I mean, this isn't really where you want to be going. And also, there's a way to look at this. You know, Russia and Venezuela trade a lot in oil. So, I mean, it's very possible if we 
you know, if, if Venezuela says, okay, we'll sell to, to the United States, you're going to lift sanctions. Um, we don't actually know if they're not selling us Russian oil right back. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't put it past them, right? Right, because they don't really have it either. So, you know, th- that's just something to think about as well. Is is the Venezuelan oil the right kind of oil that would fill in that gap of, of the Yeah. Oil? Okay, it's, it is. It's, it's the heavy stuff. So, I mean, if, you know, I mean, if we could find more ways to import, we could, I mean, Canadian oil sands could cover that as well. And if we could find more ways to import that, you know, that's totally doable and right across the border. It costs, you know, a lot less money to, you know, move it that from, uh, you know, our border instead of halfway across the world, right? Right, right. Okay, so now what about the Russian ban on exports? What, 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 where right. does that fit in? What is that doing? You know, what, what, have you read through the details on that? I don't even know if there have been details yeah. released. There haven't really been any details released so far. What they said yesterday is in two days' time, they will do, put a list out of countries that they're going to ban exports to. But they also didn't say what products. I mean, all they said was products and raw materials. Now, to me, that doesn't really sound like energy. That sounds like finished goods and perhaps metals. Uh, But that's just me speculating. Again, we just don't have the details right now. Okay. Okay. Now, where are we at? One of the things that I was curious about is as long as this Russian situation goes on, um, it seems to me, and, and, and feel free to tell me if I'm looking into this correctly, but it seems to me like we're sort of in a situation where as long as this situation goes on, I would expect energy prices. Now, who knows at what pace you know, this happens? I, I don't pretend to know. Maybe you do. Um, but if, as long as this situation keeps going, I would expect energy prices just to keep climbing north. Do you think that's is, – is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, you know, if the uncertainty remains, um, and we also have to look at, you know, closely watch how many barrels, even though the United States said they're not buying from Russia, but it's really only like 600,000 barrels per day out of the 5 million that they export. Um, uh, And the UK said that they would uh, be slowly – You know, they're going to take a year to kind of get off Russian oil. They do buy a little bit more than us. About 10% of what they get comes from Russia. But I think also we saw markets take a little bit of a relief because people were expecting perhaps EU to, um, to sanction Russian oil, which, you know, this morning, Germany was adamant they are not going to, which is <laughs> it's kind of difficult for them because they get 40% of all their um, oil and gas from Russia. So they can't just turn it off. Now, we'll have to closely watch, you know, there seems to be, you know, a lot of the international community is kind of getting on companies to disengage from Russia. So we'll have to see how the international community reacts to the EU. But on top of that, what we also have to watch is, although um, there's limited sanctions on oil, it's really just the United States and Canada, which Canada hasn't bought oil from since 19 or since 2019. So that was kind of just a political gesture. Um, But 
we are seeing companies sort of self-sanction, right? So we're, we've already seen about 1.5 million barrels of Russian oil taken off the market just because people are scared to touch it. Um, and about 1 million barrels per day of product. Uh, we are seeing, you know, a shipping, the shipping industry, some we're seeing a lot of ship owners don't really want to go pick up Russian oil because they're afraid of uh, sanctioning. Um, we're also watching Asian buyers kind of hunting for more Saudi crude um, and less Russian crude. Um, we're seeing some banks like that we're seeing some companies struggle with getting bank guarantees. So there is some uh, oil coming off the market just because people are kind of scared to touch it right now. Now, if these, you know, two, you know, 1.5 million barrels a day on oil, it's not too terrible at this point. Uh, but we do need to watch that and see if those numbers grow. Okay. And then, and then, Obviously, I, you know, I think we all know what's happening at the margin and what, you know, the, the chaos that this whole scenario has, put, has injected into oil markets and energy markets. Have we seen an impact uh, in terms of inventories and supplies in the last two months? Like, have we seen a real, you know, uh, a, a real impact on the, on the you know, um, the nuts and bolts of the industry as far as are we, are we seeing the impact in lower inventories, bigger draws? Or is it, are we kind of in the same place that we were? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, over the last, I mean, this market is very tight, no matter how you're going to look at it right now, mm -hmm. right? I mean, a, a lot of, um, you know, that big push up to $130 a barrel was, you know, risk premium put into the market um, over Russia, Ukraine. But, you know, aside from that, you know, we were already close to $100 a barrel, right? And that's because of the basic fundamentals of the market. The market's very tight. I mean, if we look at the U.S. market, for example, the WTI contract, which is actually Cushing storage, we're down to 22.2 million barrels in that. Now, their stated capacity is 90 million barrels, but you need room at the top of the tanks to transfer oil. So, I say, like, realistically, it can hold 75 million barrels. We're down to 22.2. I mean, the lowest we've been in the last 20 years is 13 points, uh, 13.4. So, you know, we're getting to the bottom of the barrel here. So, you know, that's why we're also seeing that uh, crude in severe backwardation right now because that is the actual uh, – you know, U.S. contracts. So th that's the U.S. situation. And if we just look at total crude oil inventories, X, the SPR, we're still 13% um, below the five-year average for this time of year. So inventories are tight in the United States. If we go globally, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing, you know, vortex of floating storage. We're seeing those uh, come down. Uh, Fujara data, that's the UAE um, product storage. They just had the largest draw ever in middle distillates, which is the diesel. Um, so we're seeing inventories drawing in products and oil globally, right? And OPEC plus, you know, they, they can't, even though they keep increasing um, per month, 400,000 uh, 400, barrels per day, right? Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that they're unable to keep up with that. So, for example, you know, in December, they were at like 119% compliance. 
in January, they were 129% compliance. In February, they're 146% compliant. So they're just not, I mean, you can raise, you know, the paper limit all you want, but if you can't actually produce that, then you have a problem. Yeah, it doesn't really matter, right? Right. What, what are you paying attention to? Because um, it seems to me, uh, I heard that, and I have not checked today, but as of yesterday, nat gases and nat gas prices, as crazy as they've been in Europe, um, just kind of went off the charts. Are you keeping an eye on the nat gas situation as well? Yeah, I mean, I mean, nat gas, obviously, you know, it's been crazy volatile in Europe and, um, and in Japan in that uh, JKM and the TTF contract. You know, the United States... I mean, we produce a lot of nat gas. In fact, by the end of this year, we've built out enough capacity that we'll be the world's largest exporter of nat gas. So, you know, our nat gas contract hasn't really moved a lot. The only contract that we have seen move a lot in the U.S., which got up to about $13, was when we were having that polar vortex in the Northeast. And that's just because of the logistics, because they don't want pipelines up there. So, um so it's more more expensive in the winter up there, uh, but besides that, you know the you know the, our contract has remained pretty steady because we just have so much of it. Okay, now where do we where are we at in terms of when you and I were DMing yesterday? You said that we were in sore need of a pullback. Yeah. Um, kind, kind of walk us through that. I mean, from the trading side, I, I, I know what you're talking about, but I know when you right. say that you're looking at the market as well. Uh, kind of give me what, what, what you had in mind, what you're looking for, and then kind of levels that you're watching right now. Yeah. I mean, I think we had too much risk premium in the market. The market was getting too volatile, moving on every single headline. Um, you know, I think we, you know, aside from looking at the charts, technically speaking, um, you know, I think that. I think we're going to move higher in the summer because it, oil inventories are tight. That said, I don't want to move higher from 120 or mm-hmm. 130. Do you know, I want to see this market pull back a little bit, give it some breathing room, because I do think we could po- possibly see 150 this, you know, this summer when we hit high demand season, unless something obviously drastically changes and we suddenly find some barrels of oil somewhere. <laughs> Under somebody's mattress, right? <laughs> right. Um, um, so, and, and that number that you're looking for, that you're just basing that on on the tightness of the market. Where you know right. that's not a would, that's that it'd be fair to say that that's not a geopolitical uh, risk price, right? Of one right. That was yeah. That was before. That was my price target before this all happened. Before that, you know, the Russia invaded Ukraine. So, um, you know, just based on the fundamentals of the market. Um, again, you know, you know, we had that huge, you know, like $30 risk premium in the market too soon, too fast, too volatile. Um, you know, I'm I like to see some of that air come out because we really aren't at, you know, unless we really see start seeing Russian barrels off the market or the EU, um, you know, decides to also embargo uh, Russian oil and gas, you know, I think that was, you know, just too soon, too fast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So as we look at the, so as we look at this a little bit longer term, um, let, let's, let, let's run for instance, with the scenario here of a resolution of some kind, uh, in the Ukraine, Russia situation, a 
uh, a resolution that calms things down and right that, that kind of takes the worst case scenarios off the table. So we're so we're now you know pretending as a, for a mental exercise that we're pushing past the uh, you know the panic driven highs in, in in oil and things like that. As we look out over the next couple years. It is my understanding, again, listening to things that you have said and other people that, whose opinion I respect in, in this space, um, that A, we are, like you said over and over, it's a very, very tight market. Um, we, we know the financing issues that are being thrown at a lot of these companies, the things that you know can and probably will prevent production. What are we looking at naturally going forward in terms of the next 12 to 24 months as far as the price of oil goes um, and, you know, I, obviously what happens in the economy overall is going to have an impact on, on where you right. see demand and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but if, if, we, if we're looking at a somewhat normal, I, I'm not sure what that like, means anymore, right. in <laughs> a normalized environment, like, where do you kind of see that natural trajectory taking us? Right. So if we have, you know, say we get a peaceful, hopefully we get a peaceful resolution to the Ukraine situation because nobody likes war. Right. Um, so, you know... I still think, you know, my long-term trajectory is still, um, you know, I'm still very bullish this market just because of, you know, even though suddenly the Biden administration is saying, well, it's all your fault for not producing enough. I mean, which is just a ridiculous argument because they were, you know, the second he got in office, he tried to stop oil drilling. But, I, you know, aside from that, you know, I, I, there are a lot of problems with asking U.S. oil to, to drill. First of all, they want to keep investors right now. Investors have gotten burned in the past twice, big, mm-hmm. big, bigly. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, you know, they're focused on, you know, capital discipline, free cash flow, dividends, and stock buybacks right now. Um, then the all then the, the other part of that is you can't just turn on the taps, right? You know, it's gonna it takes it takes at least six months um, to you know get an oil well to production, and that's if it's you know that's if it's already drilled, you know, longer if it's if it's not drilled. But the problem therein remains is that the industry is facing labor shortages like the rest of the country, and supply chain problems. It's hard to source parts right now to even drill these wells. It's hard to source pipe. It's hard to source steel. Um, So, you know, this industry is facing the same challenges that a lot of other manufacturing and mining industries are uh, facing globally. So it's just not as simple as here's, you know, we gave you 9,000 acres of land, go ahead and drill. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's always frustrating how uh, you know, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody. We own tech stocks too, but in this tech-dominated market, it just seems like we have been we we've we, we've been lost in this spin cycle for like the last 15 years, where commodity prices really haven't mattered, and right. and, and and everybody seems to think that they don't matter anymore, and that you can just flip a switch. And, oh, it's no problem. We'll always have it. It's no big deal. Um, That's really not the case, right? Right. (laughs) It's just like you said, these things take these things take time. You know, you were talking about the refinery issues. Now, so many of the refinery issues that we have are legacy issues, um, you know, from us importing crude uh, 
well, we imported the majority of it for a long time, right? And, and we had to refine. So, so that's why our refineries aren't capable of refining our crude here, correct? Right. And you also have the problem is that most of what we produce is light, sweet crude. And basically, you can only get gasoline out of that barrel, right? Um, we, we need to import heavier stuff because we need heavier distillates. We need diesel. We need jet fuel. We need, you know, a, a lot of other heavier fuels that, you know, our barrels just can't are unable to produce. It's just, you know, it's, it's, you know, physics, science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> and that, well, that's what, you know, people don't really realize. It's, you, you know, you know, crude, there's different, a lot of different crude grades, right? And so one cannot necessarily replace the other, especially when you start getting heavy on um, the opposing streams of, you know, gravity, API, which is just the, the sulfur content of oil. I mean, not to get too technical, but um, so we do, you know, we're, we're going to need to, to import because we need other fuels than just gasoline. Yeah. Where do you think, um, in, 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 I think I know the answer to this, but I know that you do. So I, I will defer to you as, as all know. things related to oil. Um, one of the things that we've been watching is, is a lot of the offshore companies. I mean, first of all, um, the move in the energy stocks in general to me is pretty incredible. Um, it seems to me like that sector is priced like, you know, I've heard people be like, well, I, I think the majority of the moves over in oil. So oil stocks are a sell. And I, my answer to them is apparently you have not run through the numbers, right? Like, right. you know, if, if we're, if we're at 80 to 90 oil, Based on the prices we're looking at on a lot of these things, I mean, they are just... You still want to be... Yeah, you still want to be vested in these stocks. I mean, these companies are making money. You know what I mean? Even if the oil comes, you know, at $80, $90, we haven't seen $80, $90 in years. Right. (laughs) And well, and then these companies, right? They're not not spending anywhere near as much on CapEx. They they had to tighten their belt severely to survive over the last two. So a lot of them been paying down debt drastically. So not only do you hit this kind of nirvana price as far as oil goes, but um, there's just, there's less to encumber that cash, right? That cash is just dropping to the bottom line in so many of these companies, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, if you look at, I mean, there, to me, there, you know, there's just some great buys still, even though we've seen, you know, moves well off the lows um, in that sector. I mean, there's still room to run. And those companies are in a lot better shape than a lot of other companies out there. Um, Finally, they've gotten their act together, right? Yep. And, you know, PE ratios are not insane, no. Well, right. the other the, the, well, the other thing too is, and and, and I, I've been trying to explain this to people. They're not even close to insane. And exactly. go look at the average sale. Right, the PE ratio is looking at the last twelve months of production. Okay. Well, the, <laughs> prices have gone up quite a bit in the last twelve months. So if you normalize them to like the last two quarters, right, th- that right. PE ratio looks a heck of a lot lower. Um, and the, these things are just not expensive, but one of the, one of the sectors, um, and I saw you put a tweet out in this the other day and, and I know the company well, and we may or may not be involved, but, um, uh, you mentioned rig and, and one of the things that we've been looking at is that for the most part, it seems like a lot of this, uh, these offshore plays have just been kind of forgotten about kind of left behind. Oh, absolutely. Uh, what do you, what do you what do you what do you make of that? Is there any logic to that? Um, 
And what kind of opportunity do you see there? And if there is an opportunity there, which it certainly looks like when you look at charts and when you look at valuations, what's been holding those back? Why haven't they benefited as much from this rally as, you know, even a Chevron? <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, I think because there, there haven't been a there are some exciting discoveries going on right now offshore and i companies if you look at you know the the majors mm-hmm. they're pulling out of you know like shell plays but they're still looking at offshore mm-hmm. right because it seems to be less damaging for them when you, you know when people look you know because of the esg movement and everything don't do shale shale is bad right. but you know go you know, offshore is fine. So there's some exciting discoveries going on right now um, in off the west coast of Africa and um, in, in South America right now. So I think that that sector will pick up. Another problem with that sector is that those projects take a lot longer than, say, a shale project to come online, right? Because you're looking at from I just discovered oil to I'm actually pumping it out of the ground takes, you know, seven to 10 years. Right. So those project those projects just take a, a lot longer. But, you know, I kind of I think it's very overlooked right now. Um, and I should probably start talking about it more. <laughs> well, there was there was a find yesterday that that uh, com- company that we're involved in or, or not yesterday in the last week or so. Um, it was interesting to bring bring up the find, especially off the coast of Africa. So total. Uh, announced a big find. What what do you know about that find? So um, I is it, which one was it in? It was. Uh, I think it was off, off the coast of Namibia, of, if I remember correctly. Namibia, uh, to, yeah. I mean, that's a great area. That's an up and coming area. And I was talking about that two years ago when nobody else was talking about. That's why I was in. That's initially why I got into to to Devon. Right, because they were drilling over there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I've been looking at that play for for a couple of years now, um, and waiting for for some discoveries. Total, total discovered something there, and um, somebody else did. But I can't remember off the top of my head. What what kind of crude is that, Tracy? So that'll be kind of a medium grade. Okay, okay, and and that in in, in is that. Uh, where can that be refined? Can we refine medium grade here? Um, yes, we can. Okay, we just can't. Absolutely. We just can't we deal just, with the, the light stuff. We can. We. I mean, we refine a lot of gasoline, right? Oh, with okay. our with our own oil, that's fine. It's just that domestically, we need other fuels, so right. we import and refine the heavier fuels that we that we also need to use. Okay, gotcha. Um, and then, w- when you look at w- when you're looking at these off, w- what is what is tip- One of the things I wanted to ask you is this typical relationship between, um, you know, offshore these different are, are there different stages in terms of a bull run in oil? Do, do you do you typically see offshore come on later for the for the for the reasons that you just said? The market's got to be convinced that oil is going to stay higher for longer, right? Especially yes. considering the length of the time of the project. Is that is that kind of the way that happens? That offshore is kind of the last one to the party. Yes, okay. absolutely. Okay. Those projects just take longer. They're more expensive. Um, and nobody wants to go in and start drilling if they think oil's going to, you know, fall to 
20 tomorrow, right? <laughs> well, and that's I, 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 that's kind of one of the weird things about this setup is um, – and you're much closer to it. But my read from the outside is that the – and, and th- there are a lot of logical reasons for this. I'm not saying I, I don't understand why this is the case. But there does not seem to be anywhere near the level of exuberance or excitement to start drilling despite what's going on with oil. Is well, that – Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely correct. Um, again, you know, if you listen to, I mean, I listen to earnings calls, you know, Q4 earnings calls, and nobody really wants to go out there and drill. I mean, there's a couple companies that do. I think, you know, EOG said, yeah, they're willing to go out and drill. But, you know, a lot of the mid-tier and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, majors, they don't want to, they don't, they don't want to drill more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of that myself. Um, yeah, you know, right. Yeah, not for the price of, you know, not obviously, you know, I, I, you I don't think two hundred dollar oil is good for the economy. But in terms right. of, yeah, I don't, I don't want them incinerating my capital either, like they have so many times over the past cycles, right? Well, exactly. And they don't want to, you know, again, they don't want to lose investors right now i mean they've been you know they've been the bottom of the barrel of the last pick of you know any stock in the s p 500 for a very long time right i mean we went from literally they were 20 percent weighted in the s p to literally below two percent and we're now at about three percent so there's a lot of room for this uh for, for this sector to grow where do you see global oil demand going i i i um higher uh, yeah, well, I, so here's the here's the thing. I, again, everybody thinks that I pick on this person, but 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 this person gets quoted by a lot of people that are, in my opinion, fanboys of her. Uh, but Kathy. talking about how they she believes that secular oil demand peaked in 2019. Um, She's off her rocker. Well, Sorry. I, that's just not that's not what the data shows, does it? No, the data we we are you know we're still globally increasing our oil capacity, and the thing is, if you want to, you know, and I wrote a thread on this, but if you want to, you know, if you want this energy transition, right, um, and we'll just take EVs for example, because that's what I used. I mean, first of all, the mining sector has the same lack of capex that. Um, that uh, that the oil companies suffer from, right? Mm-hmm. And so would they already have a supply deficit. Um, and then um, if you look at, you know, as demand increases for these vehicles, so does the need for these metals, right? EVs mm-hmm. require... EVs require significantly more metal than ICE vehicles. Um, if we take, for example, um, ICE vehicle requires... 18 to 49 pounds of copper, whereas an EV requires 189 pounds of copper. That does not include the battery. So we're going to need a ton of metals for EVs, batteries, and charging stations. These metals are already surging to new highs. This already adds to the cost of production for these vehicles, meaning higher costs to the consumer. Um, In addition, most of our grid is uh, you know, runs off of fossil fuels. So uh, yeah, that means higher charging prices for these EVs. And, in, and if we go back to the mining sector, a mining's very energy intensive. Oh, so yeah. you're going to need a lot of fossil fuels 
to mine more metals. So higher oil prices, higher costs of mining, higher metal prices, higher costs to the consumer, right? And so this is not, and that's not even taken into account that if everybody transfer, our, our grid would literally fail if everybody, if half the country switched to EVs tomorrow. Right. Oh, it would. It would. Go, I mean, we, I. I. The way I've said it before is, all you'd see is like a puff of smoke, right? Like, oh yeah. I mean, it Absolutely. would just. It would melt down. I mean, we literally, if for to get to these goals, which are ridiculously uh, short-sighted, uh, we're gonna have to really. We're gonna literally have to redo our entire grid from the ground up, and that's trillions and trillions of dollars, and nobody wants to pay for that. So. Did you yeah. see the estimate I saw? And I don't – please don't start – you know, don't – nobody send me emails because I, I, I'm admitting that this could be way off. But I, it seems to me I was reading a report somewhere. They said that to rebuild the entire U.S. grid would take somewhere in excess of like 25 or $30 trillion. Is that right? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> and is it, is it just – well, yeah, I mean, that's a big, that's, that's a lot that's of a lot of That's a lot of money, right? Because we, I mean, that's from the ground up. I mean, right now, how our grid is, is that we're kind of putting, we're kind of, it's kind of slapped together, right? We're putting, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, well, uh, I mean, so, think of how many phases it's got. I mean, because it's never, they've just sort of, to me, it sort of reminds me of the, you know, the old house that started off at like 700 square feet. And now right. it's like 2100 and it's had three renovations or three additions in the last 80 years, you know, where, where stuff is Jimmy rigged together and right. you know, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's exactly is that, it. That, that is kind of like our grid, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly that where you have all sorts of, you know, weird wiring and weird piping and you know, that's what we have right now. So, you know, I mean, we really need to tear it down and uh, start all over. Well, I, one of the things that I'm wondering with wondering if is it, there I, in order to try to I, because that's ironic. I mean, it's, there's a lot of ironic things going on right now, but right? When, yeah, <laughs> when you when you look at the EV space specifically, it's just ironic to me because they need a lot more raw materials, right? Which a lot. Is, which are like you said, are carbon intensive and all these kind of things. Everybody acts like this is just a fix, and it's just ridiculous, oh, right? And you know, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's very mining is very dirty. Have you ever looked at a lithium mine? Ugh. It's very dirty, yeah. right? And so, you know, this is not really clean technology. No, <laughs> no. Well, right. and then the other one that I think is hilarious is watching, you know, some of these EV stocks making rebounds when the price of nickel is doing what it's doing. Because isn't it oh. nickel is a big component in those batteries? Oh, yeah. I mean, all they're also nickel, aluminum, copper. I mean, all those uh, lithium, they're all surging, Right. Well, and then if you look at Tesla in particular, in an effort to lower the weight to compensate for the heavier drivetrain and the weight of the batteries, they use a lot more oil in terms of plastics in their car than a traditional manufacturer does. So right. I look at I look at these EVs and I'm like, these things are inflation traps. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. So, I mean, you're still going to need, you know, again, look, all the plastics, right? So you're still going to need a ton of petrochemicals for all of this. We, yeah, so we just so what you're saying is, Tracy, we just can't get rid of fossil fuels overnight, huh? No, that's exactly what I'm saying. Well, so do you think now we're getting a little bit further away from the oil conversation? But one of my hopes out of this um, is that we get some sane energy policy, 
right? Like, yes, you know, like <laughs> I, you look at it and there's plenty of craziness going on in the United States as well. But like Germany, are you kidding me? Like you, you shut off your nuke plants, right? I exactly. Mean, what, what? And they're and they're not planning to bring them back on because the Greens don't like them because the nuclear waste. Right. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, you can't, you know, it, it, so what happened is. They shut down the nuclear plants. They've got three left. They're shutting down by the end of the year. And instead, they're having to buy more coal and not shut down and, re- and in fact, restarted a coal plant. <laughs> the, I, the, you can't, like, you can't make it up. You can't make it up. No. It, it sounds like a script out of, like, a Peanuts comic or something like that. You know what I mean? Where I, it's just, it, it just absolutely defies logic. It, this goes into a conversation that I've had with several people where – and I love the fact that you brought up the nuclear the nuclear waste aspect of this whole thing because I'm looking at them and I'm going, okay, so is 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 nuclear waste – now, I, I don't really know what the weight of it is, but there's really not a lot of it. Um, you know, every year, even out of all the reactors, and we could probably load it up on a couple of SpaceX rockets and launch the stuff to outer space. But e- even, even if we couldn't do that, uh, it's still a – it's very low – you know, very small byproduct or really isn't, it's, it's not the, it's not the mass people think it is. Um, but one of the things I find so curious about the people that push back against even that because of the nuclear waste, I go, wait a second, is, is that little bit of nuclear waste going to make the planet uninhabitable? Right? Like, cause you're telling me that essentially the world's going to burn. My right? is going to be under eight feet of water <laughs> unless we stop this. But then you're telling me, mm-hmm. well, no, no. To avoid total planetary destruction, it's not worth some nuclear waste that doesn't have anywhere near the capability of ruining the planet. Right. It doesn't literally uh, – the, the, the inmates are running the asylum right now as far as energy policy is concerned. I'm not kidding. Well, I no. Mean, none, it, of it, it, none of it makes any sense whatsoever. And what you can realize is you cannot have wind and solar – as your base load because <laughs> they're intermittent power sources. So you got to need something, right? And, you know, we just saw Germany backtrack and, you know, they wanted initially earlier this year when they were talking about it, COP26, they didn't want natural gas at all, right? right. Now we're seeing the backtrack and they decided that they're going to uh, build an, SP- an LNG SPR after all of this. And, um, and uh you know try and to you know try to, to to get more involved in the natural gas market but i mean that's a complete 180 from they were you know just 5 months ago right well and that and that's the, the natural gas subject to me is another one that is a mind boggler can you and and you may not know all of this i'm assuming you got a pretty good idea of it how much cleaner is nat gas versus oil and then even versus coal? Are you familiar with that? Yeah. I mean, it's I, – I don't know the exact uh, figures, but I mean natural gas is very clean, clean burning, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a lot um, – it's a lot less um, polluting, I should say, than obviously coal or, um, or oil. Well, because – correct me if I'm wrong, but much more of it burns so there's just less – I'm not using the right words. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a clean. I mean it's clean burning fuel. I mean the only reason it's so clean that like um you know that that rotten smell when you smell nat gas. We actually put that smell into nat gas. Right. So you can tell if you have a leak or not. Otherwise, I mean you can't even smell it. (laughs) Well, and then one of the things I've said too is, if if you don't think nat gas is is acceptable, go home and do me a favor. Turn all of the burners on on your stove. 
and leave them on overnight. Now, that's probably a fire hazard, but, but to my <laughs> point, then get up and measure the air quality of your kitchen and right. then see if there's any soot on the ceiling. And then what I will tell you is that you will see virtually no air, de- air quality degradation and you're not going to see black marks on your ceiling. Um, right. if, if you can burn it in your kitchen, <laughs> you don't suffer right. any air degradation. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's the end all be all right. It still has some carbon right. emissions. But if we're really serious, if the goal is to reduce emissions as quick as possible, to me, I'm looking at it and going, OK, well, it's nuclear and not gas. I mean, that'll get you done. Right. Exactly. I am. I, com- I completely agree with you. Now, no now argument one, for me. Okay. Now, one other thing, and I, again, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but I was reading, um, I was doing some research, and I came across some stats that I thought were kind of alarming, at least from my understanding of it. Um, on a lot of these coal-fired power plants, or maybe it's not on a lot of them. Again, I'm not an expert on coal-fired power plants by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm not either. They put these scrubbers on them. Are you familiar with how these scrubbers work? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> to, to be honest, I don't know if that's kind of like the scrubbers that they put on ships to clean them. I'm not sure. That's same or not. I I know I I know. You what, know, because like IMO 2020, they had to either you know redo all their ships, or you could buy a scrubber to clean it so that you could buy so that you can burn um, low sulfur fuel oil right, rather than right. high sulfur fuel oil. So I don't know if that. Is the same concept or not? I really don't know. I don't want to say, you know. Well, if anybody out there knows how these scrubbers work on these coal plants, feel free to shoot me a DM or or message me in a tweet because I I was reading, I was doing some research, and what what it said was on these coal-fired power plants, and I think it was, I want to say it was on the IEA website or something. I, I remember looking at it and going, wait a second. Is, is this like a study put out by Peabody Energy or something? Because they, they were saying that these scrubbers have gotten good enough to where they typically, average, expect them to reduce the carbon emissions of the coal fire power plant by between 98 to 99%. Wait, and is this from IEA? I, I, I Don't quote me. All I remember is going back and checking the site that it came from, making sure it was legitimate because I was sitting there. Because like I said, I thought, wait a second, this has got to be issued. Because that, that sounded way too clean to me. I, I, I wouldn't think yeah. the scrubbers were that effective. I was kind of expecting like 50 to 60% reduction in emissions. Right. Um, but anyway, I, I, again, if anybody knows, let me know. I am not sure on these numbers. I'm admitting that, guys. And, and I just – I would like to know the uh, – I would like to know the facts. Okay, so what are what are key things? Um, what are things that we haven't covered, Tracy? That you're looking at right now uh, regarding our energy situation, regarding energy policy. Um, oh, and then the other thing I want to talk to you about is: let's say now, let's operate under the premise that the that the embargo on Russian fuel is going to last for a while. Right. Um, I am assuming that China would pick up a good amount of that slack. Um, for what other people are not importing, what, what, where, where does that, what happens to that Russian oil if that's the case? Where, where does it I'm, go? Is, you know, I mean, China can pick up some of it. I mean, obviously, China by far is Russia's largest customer. Um, you know, it, 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 again, what you know, it's hard to say because we are seeing people shun, um, self-sanctioned shun some Russian oil right now. We don't know. You know how long that's going to last. Um, you know, um, I mean, there's a lot of speculation in this question because you know it depends on how quickly this you know war is over, and then 
is the damage permanent? We don't know. Damage permanent meaning we're just not going to buy from them anymore and everybody's going to be kind of sketch with them. Does, you know, is it permanent? Is, does it take six months? Is it a year? I don't know. There's, you know, there's a lot of uh, speculation within that question. Well, and then I, I, it also sort of depends on what Russia's internal policy is, right? As far as what, right. what they're what they're stopping from being exported, how aggressive they are on that. Right. Um, you know that that I'm assuming that's gonna that's gonna say a role, huh? So yeah, I mean, well, I have to see. I mean, I don't think they'll shoot themselves in the foot. I really don't think they'll include energy, but I have been proven wrong before many times. <laughs> well, I, but I, I, don't. I, I I just don't think so because that's their you know main. Uh, you know, that's where they get most of their money, right? I mean, their GDP is not is nothing, right? right? So um, like, that's like, most of their their income. So I can't really see them, you know, sanction it. I mean, what I thought. I mean, let's put it this way: if they wanted to, they could have cut Europe off, right? But they didn't. They kind of talked about it, teased a little bit about it, said we might cut Nord Stream 1 off, but that's only one pipeline. I mean, there are several that go into Europe and that feed into Europe, and so that wouldn't really have been that big of a deal. You know, they've kind of cut Yamal supplies, you know, a few times over the last couple months, but they always end up turning it back on. So, I mean, Russia could initially come back after we threw a bunch of sanctions at them and said, forget it, you get you get no energy, but they didn't do that, right? They need the money. Okay, so moving now to, to kind of looking, to kind of taking a little bit of a step back, and then we talked about this a little earlier. And, and I'm with you looking at the economic data, and again, I'm I'm influenced by you, so that's probably not, it's probably not the best <laughs> data point to say that I, that I agree with you. But um, <clears throat> it seems to me that you look at the you look at the economics of it. You just you look at the landscape. Ninety five to one hundred seems like a very fitting place for it to be naturally right now. Uh, speaking of WTI crude, yeah. um, you're seeing the market get pounded right now. You've got WTI down to one oh seven. Um, considering where we're currently at, right? You still got the embargo on Russia. The war is still going. I think th- th- there's like you said. I think we're due for a pullback, and then that's kind of compounding on top of you know, a, a softening in the position of Zelensky out of, or I hope I'm saying his name correctly, but uh, out of Ukraine, I would assume that that looks at that pullback. I, I would, I'm looking at the oil market and kind of feeling like as long as this Ukraine scenario is on the front burner, uh, 105 to 110 seems like a nice entry play. Uh, again, assuming the Ukraine yeah. situation stays on the, stays on the front burner. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that because, you know, I think, you know, I thought, I mean, 130 was, too much. Too, yeah, that was just the market overre- overreacting, right? And we've seen that. And so I think, you know, I would love to see this market pull back to, you know, 95, you know, you know, any, anywhere from 90 to 100, I will say, you know, and get some of this air out, get some of this risk premium out. I mean, we still have Libya problems too, right? That country has two is having they always have problems but um but you know the country's like split in two again right you know they have two presidents one just stepped down mm-hmm. um but they're still having problems and so and they don't NOC which is the National Oil Corporation there um has kind of lost control of uh, oil and there's protesters shutting so you know they're 
they're down again too. So, you know, there's geopolitical risk, you know, always in the background in this market. Yeah, it's always going to it's always going to loom large. So do you so you do you think it's possible? I mean, look, oil's a wild animal and it it can do anything and and typically right. does, right? So do you think that 90 to 100 is possible with this Ukraine situation still on the front burner? Not on the front, not with it on the front burner, no. Because okay. you, 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 I don't think anybody wants to be in that area, and then all of a sudden Russia does say, "Okay, we're cutting EU off," or EU does say, "Okay, we're embargoing Russia." Like, I don't think anybody wants to be. I think that you know you're still going to have kind of a high, heightened stance in oil. Yeah. Right, because nobody wants to be caught. You know, off foot. In other words, you don't want to be shorting the market here, right? If it pulls back, that's great. Then you can buy it. But you know, nobody wants to be shorting the market really right oh, here oh. without knowing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so. I mean, you you know, we 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 certainly were taking profits between 125 to 130. But I didn't, you know, I wasn't prepared to short oil even at 130. Just because, no, I know. You know, I mean, who you know, a missile goes. I mean, who knows? Exactly. Um, but I will say this with crude under 110. Um, and again, as long as the Russian scenario is going, it doesn't look like a very good short right now either. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, even if it did drop, pull back 20 bucks from here, it's, I personally wouldn't have the cojones to do that. <laughs> well, because I mean, you could, you, you, you could wait, you could wait, you could be overnight, wake up in the morning to a, a $40 right? ripper. Right? Uh, exactly. Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, no. I'm not, <laughs> not, not, no, no, not interested. That, that is the opposite of good risk management, right? Exactly. <laughs> okay, so in closing, Tracy, and I, and I appreciate you agreeing to do this, and I, I feel like I've got a much clearer picture of where we're at, what we're looking at. Anything else that we need to keep an eye on that, that you think plays into this that we haven't discussed at all? I mean, I think we pretty much really covered it. I mean, I'll just stress again, I think we need to really look at um, the volumes that are being taken off the market by self-sanctioning from from Russia, right? We don't want to start seeing those get too too big. You're going to see a bunch of announcements like we did today about, you know, OPEC's probably, you know, we just heard from Iraq said, yes, we can produce more. Um, and you're probably going to see a lot of headlines like that coming on but you have to remember that OPEC plus is a group and they all have to decide on that together right Right. and so far Saudi Arabia Saudi and Arabia and UAE basically have the most capacity to um to bring those volumes up but what they said is you know just this week um earlier this week they said um you know we're a group and we're not going to just go ahead and produce more it's got to be a group. And I've said this since June of 2020. This is a more cohesive group than ever. And they learned their lesson and they're not going to turn on each other again. Right. And so um, and, and the Saudis basically reiterated that um, just on Monday, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I well, that and that's <clears throat> to me, that is the, the, the well, obviously, that's the toughest part of navigating this is that the impact that the political winds and whims, right, have on this. Because in a situation like this, rumors, headlines, political statements, um, you know, they can I mean, today was, you know, today was what? We were down 15% at one point, then we bounced back up 10%. I mean, 
Yeah, we're be, be be careful out there. I don't know if I would really be wanting to trade like the futures contracts at this. You know, I'd probably either look at you know something like options and a defined risk, or you know, really the equity side of it. I think you know there's a lot more upside for these companies. Yeah, and even the and with as crazy as this market is and as underpriced those things are, one of the things that we've been saying is, look, I think the valuations long term are phenomenal. But, mm -hmm. you know, even if you don't see oil dip below 85 in the next 12 months, uh, I would not be surprised if it did, right? Let's say you got this Russian-Ukrainian situation resolved. Uh, I would not be surprised to see XOP drop 20 to 30% on that. Um, yeah, I mean, it very well could. I think it would get bought right back up. I mean, I'd be in there buying with both hands. But yeah, so would I. <laughs> it, it, but, you, but, I mean, you, I'm already looking at these stocks right now, and there, there, there's so many of them that are so detached from fundamental reality that, you know, this, this market, it, to me, is still waiting. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's like they're not listening to the Fed, that they're not watching interest rates. To me, it's like the trade that everybody wants to make is to short commodities and go long tech. You know. I know, but it's because what that because that's what they're used to be doing since 2008 when the Fed started flooding the market with easy money, right? right. That's been the trade for years now, right. right? But the thing is, is that we're now at a point that it's really we have a real supply demand issue. It's not like oh, I like value, you know. It's not like value versus growth, right? You know, battling it out anymore. We actually in the commodity markets we have. You know, we have problems in the ag markets right now. I mean, I posted a chart today. If you look, I mean, literally, there's no room for air for the Western Hemisphere planting elsewhere. Screwed on soybeans, right? So, I mean, we're having supply demand issues with uh, Ukraine today. Just um, decided not to export wheat, barley, at, at any of their cereals. Just announced that today. Mm. I mean, so we have real supply demand issues. They're coming up on plant season. If they're in the middle of war, they can't plant. Um, so, I mean, we have real supply-demand issues. I talked about metals already in the energy, metals, ags. I mean, this is a very different environment that, than we've seen, you know, over the, you know, last decade. Well, yeah, and, and I think it even stretches longer than that. I mean, to be fair, uh, you know, very, very few people uh, running books today have navigated the market with inflation above 5% in the last right. 40 years, right? And, and that is a completely different environment and a completely different game. And, um, you know, I, I, watching these people in the midst of what's going on in the, on the inflation side, in the midst of what the Fed seems hell-bent on doing, trying to pile back into these names and pick a bottom on the tech side, I'm just sitting there looking at them and going, hey, have at it, guys. I'll sell them to you, you know? Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, I just don't – you know, it's just that – uh, you know, it's just a very, very different environment. People um, are not, have, we haven't seen it yep. in a very long time. So, yep, yep. There, people are people are are caught unaware. Well, and not just caught unaware, but you know, they just don't know how to respond to it. Um, right. You know, if if you saw the Nasdaq go down five percent, that's the reason you buy it. Oh um, right, like without even thinking about it, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, are you kidding me? I mean, hey, Tesla's down twenty percent. Load up, right? Uh, right. Anyway, all right, Tracy. Well, thank you so right. much for being with us and, and taking time out of your day to do this. And hopefully you guys uh, got something out of this. I mean, this is it's getting it right from the horse's mouth. She's as smart as they come when it comes to energy markets. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. 
Thank you. No, and the always and the a fo- pleasure. You, oh, all, all our pleasure. The folks can follow you at Shy Girl C H I G R L on Twitter, and uh, mm-hmm. obviously, I highly recommend it because I feel like I feel like I should send her a check uh, for being an analyst <laughs> for Bulwark too. So, thank you so much, and uh, thank you guys for joining us. And uh, we'll we'll actually have another uh, interview coming out uh, next week, or excuse me, at the end of this week. There, there's a two for special. So uh, anyway, have a great day, and we'll get you on Friday. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.